Okay, Jesse, I'm still angry about the injustice of Charlene walking around free to this day. What's the story this time? When a high school advisor seduces a teenage boy, there are deadly consequences for her husband. Welcome to the shocking tale of media manipulation and murder that is the Pamela Smart Case. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where relationships go wrong with deadly consequences. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder or by searching Love Murder Podcast on Facebook. And if you enjoy this podcast, please, 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 pretty please, love slash murder a five-star rating on whatever app you listen through. Okay, Andy, are you ready for Pamela Smart. I love it when we always jump right in. <laughs> I know. We are getting to the point today because this is our most requested case. And by that, I mean two whole people requested it. But still, that means that it's our most popularly requested case. So thank you to Ryan C. and Hannah M. for both requesting this case. And I do think you know, I'm sure a lot of you guys out there are very familiar with the Pamela Smart case. It was a huge media sensation. It's been almost 30 years since Greg Smart was killed, yet Pamela's still everywhere. There was even a three-part documentary made last year on Investigation Discovery. It's on Hulu now. It's definitely one of the things I used called Pamela Smart, an American murder mystery. So I'd recommend checking that out for sure. I'm actually doing my sources at the beginning of the episode yeah! for one. <laughs> if you don't regularly listen to Love Murder, you will usually get my sources somewhere buried deep in the story, <laughs> like a little Easter egg. It's like a little uh, mystery of when you're going to say your <laughs> sources. You never know where no. I'm going to reveal my sources. And then our primary text was is Teach Me to Kill by Stephen Sawicki. Um, and I used also a Washington Post article by Manuel Roig Franzia. So let's get right into the story. Perfect. On May 1st, 1990, a young, beautiful woman came home from a business-as-usual day in her career as a media coordinator for a local high school. After a long day of meetings, she was looking forward to seeing her husband of less than a year. Or at least that's what she would lead the police to believe later. Pamela, the young woman, expected Greg, her husband, to be home at 10.10 p.m. when she pulled in her Honda CRX with vanity license plates reading Halen after her favorite band into the parking lot of their apartment complex in the quintessentially New England town of Derry, New Hampshire. I think it should be noted, too, that she really missed an opportunity to have a van and then have the vanity license plate say Halen. She's already starting with negative points for us here. I know. I was like, you you missed out. You can't put Halen on a Honda CRX here. No, 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 no. We needed to commit to the van for that. It, exactly. She briefly noticed that the porch light was off, which was unusual, but shook it off and unlocked the door. Turning on the light. She had taken barely two steps when she was greeted with a confusing and terrifying sight. 
Her husband, Greg, was lying unconscious in their front hall. A scream erupted from her lips, and she immediately fled to the next apartment to get help. Help, my husband, my husband, she shrieked as she pounded at the door. My husband's hurt. He's on the floor. I don't know what's wrong with him. Panicked neighbors emerged from their homes, the screams interrupting a birthday party, a late dinner, and a few viewers of the popular TV show 30-something. Someone called 911 as the concerned crowd sought to calm the young woman. Pamela sobbed and moaned as the patrolman summoned to the scene inspected her husband and a medical assistant neighbor offered to perform CPR. Together, they rolled Greg on his back, which revealed a bloody hole on the top left side of his head. It was suddenly stunningly clear. This was no accident. This was a homicide. Greg's parents, Bill and Judy, had arrived and someone shouted, For God's sake, if he's sick, someone go in and please help him. At this, an official from one of the response teams shouted back, we can't help him. He's already dead. Which I think is the most New England response I can possibly imagine. Like, no sugarcoating it. Just straight up to a crowd of his loved ones. It's so bad. It's so bad. It's It's so New England. Yeah, not the right move. No. As the scene devolved into hysterics, anguished cries, and shocked denials, the small blonde at the center of it, widowed at the impossibly young age of 22, only murmured, what will I do with the rest of my life? That question, and the more important one of what had she been doing with her life leading up to the murder, would be answered in the months to come, revealing a plot so scandalous and shocking that a media circus the likes of which none had ever experienced would descend on the small town of Derry, which would never truly recover from its reputation as the home of one Mrs. Pamela Smart, a polarizing figure of manipulation, seduction, and if you believe her detractors, murder. I love that he's your husband's dad, and you're like, "What am I gonna do with my life?" That that's it's like that's gonna come up a lot in oh, this. Oh, that like, makes me mad right out the gate. What about me? What about you, bitch? <laughs> this is. I was actually. This is going to. I basically <laughs> when I plan cases, I like try to figure out what the Andy rage meter is gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> what and was like, your prediction with this one? This one is high. This one is like it's you know there's like green, yellow, orange, and red. Oh, and so I it's think color coded. It's color coded in my numeric. head. I, okay, not numeric. I think that it's like a good orangey red here because I know you especially hate people who feel sorry for themselves and victimize themselves when yeah. there's real people suffering. Yeah. So I think that this one's gonna. Definitely really get my hit goat. that bone. Yeah, exactly. So I'm really interested. And then there's there's a lot of questions that I'm gonna posit to you guys. And I definitely hope everybody who's listening, you answer those questions too. Like let us know on social media what you think of this case because people have listened to the same material. They've watched that documentary series, the three-parter I told you about. And it's crazy to me. The comments in different articles are so different. What people interpret this case as. So definitely, you guys, let us know what you think about Pam. I mean, we'll talk about it more at the end. I'm going to get back into it, but I'm excited about this one. And Andy, actually, you haven't heard this case, right? I I feel like I've heard bits of the story, but I don't know Mm -hmm. any of the details. Like, I don't know any of the gritty details or the way people felt about it or the media. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it was 
30 years old, then that means I was five, right? <laughs> yeah, you were a baby. Yeah. This all went down in 8990. Yeah. 90. So, and we yeah, were 90 was when the murder. Yep, exactly. So this was a much bigger deal over here in New England. Okay, um, cool. So yeah, so I'm really excited too because you're a big true crime buff, so I don't always get to tell you a newish story. So no, let's this go. is fun. I've been probably mm-hmm. going to watch a documentary after we do this too. Yes, and there's a movie you should watch I'll mention at the end okay. that actually I think Dan would really like too because cool. Nathaniel loved it. Okay. Cool. So let's talk about her. Pamela Smart, it's why we're here after all. So Pam is a good-looking girl in a total 80s and 90s way. She's got that thin, blonde, girl-next-door look with the big permed hair. She was born in Miami, Florida on August 16th, 1967, a fact that Pam used to explain her self-centeredness. I'm definitely (laughs) the typical Leo, she would say one day. You know, walk in, have to be the center of everything. Everywhere I go, I'm always attracting attention for some reason or another. I'm loud, very outgoing and stuff. (laughs) Andy's shaking her head. (laughs) Yeah, you're not going to get along with Pam, Uh, I can already tell you. Okay. She was the second of three children born to doting successful parents, her father, John Wojcic, a commercial pilot for Delta, and her mother once was a court reporter, and then she became a devoted homemaker. When Pam was in junior high, her family relocated back to her parents' native New England, landing in Wyndham, New Hampshire, a wholesome community just south of Derry. Pamela was a bright and popular girl, a cheerleader, and president of her sophomore class. She was a good student, earning high marks easily and consistently on the honor roll. By senior year, she had developed quite the work-hard, party-hard reputation, as well as one for promiscuity, which she didn't attempt to deter. The rumors almost certainly originated with her high school boyfriend, who sounded like a real asshole, called Paul Reese, an all-star offensive lineman with the ridiculous nickname of Sausage, which apparently referred to his penis. I would hope so. <laughs> not his, his not his face or or body. maybe when he when he shoved himself in those tight little football outfits. <laughs> nope, nope, it was about his dick, I guess. He's so definitely he, a shower, huh? He's definitely a shower. <laughs> Sausage. Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh, no thank you. Mm-mm. No. Also way not to appeal to the uh Vegetarians. Vegetarian vegans out there. <laughs> like banana works way better and is just cuter in general. Yeah, way better. Yeah. Better much more, size, much more inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, Sausage over here likes to regale the football team and really anybody who would listen to stories of Pam's sexual prowess, which is such a teenage boy gross thing to do. Yeah, douche level is high. Yes. Thanks to her boyfriend's tales, she became known as Wham Bam Thank You Pam around the school. I mean, yeah. But apparently they said in this that she didn't mind, but I don't know whether she didn't mind or she played it off. Pam is kind of like the no press is bad press type. Like she likes attention. So 
you know, I don't know. I mean, I still think it's unfair that she was like dating somebody who like created this reputation for her. It's completely gross. But it seemed like she rolled with the punches and she might have even enjoyed the attention. Yeah. So after graduation, Pam attended Florida State University, where she majored in media performance with ambitions to someday become a television reporter. It was on a trip home to New Hampshire that she would meet a young, cute bad boy with a heart of gold named Gregory Smart. Greg was hosting a New Year's rager to welcome in 1986, replete with plenty of beer, Boone's Farm, and cocaine. Boone's Farm and cocaine. I know. That sounds like a party. An 80s party. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right? The author specifically said Boone's Farm. That's awesome. Uh I wonder what flavors. Oh, God, it had to be like Strawberry Fields Forever or something like that. (laughs) Strawberry Fields Forever with a side of cocaine. Exactly. Oh, man, it smells like high school in 1986. Yeah, not good. Mm -mm. Van Halen and Motley Crue blared from the speakers, and Pam found herself charmed by the host's taste in music and sense of style. With his long rocker hair, Greg reminded her a little of John Bon Jovi. She became immediately smitten with the fun life of the party and the two hooked up that evening, which sparked a long distance courtship. Greg at the beginning seemed more intent to keep up with his ladies man's ways than commit to something serious with Pamela. For the first six months of their relationship, he was still seeing other women. But over the summer when she returned from college, the two became a hot and heavy item. In early 1987, Greg surprised everyone by moving to Florida to be with Pam. The two bonded over their mutual love of heavy metal, partying, and good times. <laughs> you always know it's going to be a funny story when, uh, I mean, this is ends in tragedy like all of Love Murders do, but yeah. like when the couple bond over good times, that just means they like to like get fucked up together. I know. Like, was there anything else in the 80s? No, no, just cocaine and, and it's heavy like, metal. 2020 is like a pandemic with a revolution on the side. And 1980 was literally just cocaine and partying and big hair. Yeah, we were talking about the 90s and we were like, what an innocent time. Like everyone was so horrified that our president got a blow job. I was like, I would kill to feel that way again. <laughs> really? Pamela worked her ass off to get good grades and at her unpaid job as an intern at WCTV Channel 6, the Tallahassee CBS affiliate. In her spare time, she hosted a two-hour radio show called Metal Madness. She called herself, get ready for this, the Maiden of Metal. Of course she did. Uh Uh-huh. A name that evoked someone much harder core looking than the pretty and petite conventional blonde. I mean, she really looks like a junior high cheerleader. (laughs) She does not look like the maiden of metal. Greg worked as a landscaper and picked up other manual labor jobs where he could. And the two moved into a nice two bedroom apartment with a friend of Pam's. Two years after they met, Greg proposed to Pam in January, 1988 with a modest solitaire diamond ring and the promise for a fulfilling life together. Encouraged by his father and Pam, Greg got into the life insurance sales business to carve out a more financially stable life for the young couple. The only change this career change brought that Pamela didn't love was when Greg cut his rocker hair in favor of a clean cut short style that he was ready for the office. Despite settling down with a now nine to five life insurance salesman, Pam would continue to crave long hair and bad boy tapes. 
Their cozy family life solidified when Greg surprised Pam with an adorable Shih Tzu puppy they dubbed Halen, for of course, Van Halen. And after Pam's graduation, they decided to move back to New Hampshire to be closer to their families. Pam had originally deferred Greg's hopes of moving back while she sent her resume tape to TV stations across the country. She applied to the local Manchester, New Hampshire station, but that would also be a dead end. Pam confided in her friends that she felt like she was giving up her dreams to marry Greg. And many were surprised to see her throw in the towel so easily. So honestly, despite so many people, like especially loved ones, describing her as so ambitious and hardworking, the decision to give up on her dream ostensibly for Greg seems to me just a precursor of how she behaves in life. Yeah. Like she takes the easy way out with the added bonus of being able to blame someone else for why she didn't accomplish her goals. Exactly. Why she, even though she got rejected over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. So she has a very convenient excuse like, oh, to be with a man I love, I had to like give up on my dreams. Not, no one was taking me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We'll see this over and over again that nothing, according to Pam, is ever Pam's fault. No, never. Never. When they first moved back, they both moved back in with their parents to save money and begin their respective new jobs. Greg at MetLife and Pam finding a great position as the media center director of a local high school. For Pam, the job was a good consolation prize for not getting to become a reporter. Right out of college, she got her own secretary, a robust benefits plan, and a $22,500 annual salary, which is almost fifty grand in today's money. Wow. That is insane. Nobody out of college gets any sort of job like that these days. And as a teacher? And as a teacher, yes. So, yes. So she clarifies in other interviews that she was never actually a teacher, but I think that she was employed by the school board and she was like the director of a media studies program. So therefore, she counts as a teacher. You know, I think she's trying to clarify this because obviously I'm getting to the fact that she has an affair with a student and I think she's trying to downplay it. But if you are any sort of 22-year-old that sleeps with a 15-year-old, you, there's no excuses in the book. Not like, but I wasn't a teacher. That doesn't make it better. I was just a director of a program. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Huge eye roll. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, that's insane. Like, that's a crazy job to have. In January 1989, they moved into their own new condo on Misty Morning Drive, only a five-minute walk to Greg's parents' house. They began to plan their upcoming wedding. The wedding took place on May 7th, 1989 at the Sacred Heart Church in Lowell, Massachusetts, where Pam's parents had wed 30 years earlier. The wedding was huge. Almost 250 people and few expenses were spared. That's a lot for two young kids getting married. They were 21 and 22. Pamela's parents even sprung for an ostentatious stretch limo called the Starship. The groom and his groomsmen stopped at a liquor store while they were in the limo and polished off seven bottles of champagne by the time they reached the church. How many groomsmen were there? I actually don't know, but they were real drunk by the time the wedding happened. (laughs) Um, This is from the book Teach Me to Kill. In the church. Uh, Amazing. All of a sudden, the priest goes, you're on, remembered the best man. And Greg and me were both like, oh, man, we're standing up at the altar and we had to go to the bathroom so bad. Plus, we were cocked. (laughs) We were standing there going, oh, geez, just trying to stay still. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. I mean, this is what happens if you're in your early. I mean, even when we got married in our 30s, we were probably drunk for it. <laughs> I feel like we had to be a little a little tipsy during years because it was so cold. Oh, my God. It was freezing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So Pam looked 80s riffic with a huge puffy dress beaded with pearls and a layered veil. So we'll definitely also use a wedding photo of them because they looked really cute, like any young, happy couple toasting to a bright future, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. So we'll definitely get one of those. But they're, um, this, they're 21 and 22, so this is just a year before his murder. Exactly. None of the 200-plus guests would have predicted in a million years that in less than a calendar year, the boyish groom would be dead. Yeah, that's horrible. No, I mean, you never think of that when you're at a wedding of two beautiful young people. No, you know? ever. Especially with how it goes down, of course. Still, only two weeks after the wedding, when Pamela and Greg returned from their Bermuda honeymoon, Pam invited Greg's mother, Judy, over, seemingly for an opportunity to insult her. So this this wedding, this marriage does not get off to an auspicious start because you probably shouldn't start it by doing something like this. <laughs> So Pam said she had something she wanted to show her mother-in-law. Pam went to a closet and came out with a pile of wedding cards. On them were notations of each person's gift of how much money they gave. First, she went through her whole family's cards, Judy said. This uncle so-and-so gave me $300. Aunt so-and-so gave me $100. And this friend from Florida gave me $500. Now, I'm getting madder and madder, and I'm saying to myself that I'm not going to say anything because of Greg. I didn't want to get into a big argument with her. So she gets done with her side, and she says, now I really want to show you this. She says, this person, and she's naming my husband's sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles, only gave $50. This person only gave $30. Do you know that $30 doesn't even pay for the price of the meal? It got to the point where Greg said, that's enough, Pam. And she still wouldn't stop. I oh, finally Greg was just there? Got out of there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Finally, I just got out of there. Never in my life have I seen anyone do such an awful thing. That's so distasteful. It's so tacky. I literally just wrote on the notes, tacky, tacky, tacky. Oh, God. That's cringeworthy. It's cringeworthy. Like, why would you do that and, like, shove it in your mother-in-law's face? Obviously, there was some sort of economic disparity between the two couples because Greg didn't get the opportunity to go to college. You know, Pam and her siblings did. Um, And I think that, too – throw that in their face seems so rude and unbelievable to me. I know even right now too, I mean, colleges are so much more expensive than they were back then. Mm -hmm. And we forget that it's not, everyone doesn't have the opportunity and the privilege to be able to go to college, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely not. And it doesn't mean anything about anyone's ability level or their intelligence or or how much they care about you. (laughs) And uh, yeah, or like what they're going to end up you know, how successful they're going to be in the long run because there's plenty of people I know who went to college and are doing not so great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's disgusting. Yep. Also, the Wojas's Pam's family were snobs about Greg and his ability to provide for their precious daughter. Later, Judy Smart said, we had to sell Greg to the Wojas's like he was a piece of merchandise. Like they had to be like, He's a good boy and he's he's got this great job and, you know, he's going to do so well for your daughter. Like, that's so 
gross that they had to feel like they had to like yeah. live up to these people's standards who by the way were not like the king and queen of england over here yeah king and queen of new england <laughs> king and queen of new england <laughs> and also greg was doing great at his job he even won a rookie of the year title at metlife and he was bringing in a whopping $42,000 his first year at the job and that's just about $88,000 today. I was going to say that's double what she's pulling in. Exactly. And he's like 22. I mean, I didn't know a single 22-year-old who was making $88,000 no. when we were getting out of school. No. No. Mhm. So the next school year Pamela spearheaded a program at Winnicunit High School called Project Self-Esteem. Being only newly 22 herself, Pam bonded extremely well with the youngsters, developing quite the devoted following, especially among the teenage boys. Pam seemed glamorous, fun, and interesting to the kids with her degree in media studies from Florida State, which seems so far away from dreary New Hampshire winters and her experience as an intern for a major city's television station. Armed with a handsome young husband to boot, the young teacher seemed to have it all. The girls truly wanted to be her, and of course, the horny teen boys wished desperately to be with her. God, that's like boys in high school, like any young teacher, like under the age of 30, who was moderately attractive. <laughs> like, I remember we had a teacher, I don't even know if we can use this, but her name was like Mrs. Botitis, which is not at all sexual. And they called her Mrs. Bo Tight Ass. Oh my God. I know boys can make anything sexual. I mean, we do it all the time too. I think girls can make anything sexual if they really put their mind to it here. <laughs> Equal opportunity here. When the Florida Department of Citrus sponsored a high school video competition, Pam jumped at the opportunity to combine working with the kids she liked from Project Self-Esteem and a chance to work her creative muscles at the media center. The idea was that kids around the country would submit a commercial about the superior nutritional value of orange juice, winning various prizes, including a trip to Disney World. By January, Pam had three dedicated students, one boy named Billy and a couple of girls named Cecilia and Karen. Feeling slightly short of the turnout she had hoped for, she enlisted the girlfriend of one of Greg's friends, 18-year-old Tracy Collins, who was barely out of high school herself. Cecilia was also Pam's media center intern and absolutely worshipped her. Cecilia was a sweet, heavyset girl who lived with her blue-collar mother and stepfather in South Seabrook, the most impoverished and rough-and-tumble part of the Winnicunit School District. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Seabrook, just so you have an idea where these kids came from and kind of like what their outlook was based on where they were from, you know? Okay, so this is where the high school is? So the high school is in a different area, but it encompasses this town. Okay, cool. So it was a really large high school, and I think it had like maybe four or five different towns that all went that fed into the same school cool. system. Um, and this was definitely the most looked down upon one. Okay. The most impoverished rough and tumble part of town is South Seabrook, a four square mile section that has long been a world unto itself. Hard by the Massachusetts border, South Seabrook is marked by blight. The front and backyards of many houses and mobile homes decorated with rusted out cars and parts. Barking dogs tethered by chains are everywhere. Outsiders regard this part of Seabrook as dog patch. This is where the natives proudly call themselves Bubba's or Bubs, 
Outsiders derisively refer to them as Seabrookers, or simply Brookers. It is a neighborhood where even the local police tread carefully, never quite sure when their cruisers might be stoned or egged. Here, generations of the same families have lived. Unwed daughters raising their babies at home are not uncommon. And while the traditional family does not thrive, a wariness of strangers makes for a thick code of loyalty among family and neighbors alike. So this is where Cecilia was from, also Billy. Was it nice that she kind of took Cecilia under her wings with the... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think Cecilia was really looking for a role model. Yeah. Um, Pam really represented a different world of opportunities for her and even encouraged her to consider a career in journalism. So I think, you know, her family and most of the people, you know, just like we were talking about in Seabrook particularly didn't have a lot of continuing education opportunities. So I think she was working really hard to be an intern and eventually get into a school program for journalism. Cool. Karen was Cecilia's best friend and only slightly less enamored with Pamela. Like all the kids kind of loved Pam. Though the most under Pam spell was certainly 15-year-old sophomore Billy Flynn, who had a blinding crush on Pamela since Project Self-Esteem. As a big metal fan himself, he was awestruck that she had DJed her own show under the moniker The Maiden of Metal. <laughs> he began um, skipping his lunch or study hall to spend time in her office whenever possible. Billy was also from Seabrook, a sensitive and introspective boy whose father had recently died in a car accident after a bitter custody battle, and he had moved to Seabrook with his mother and two younger brothers three years earlier. Oh. His Yeah, it was sad. He had moved before the car accident. They had lived in California before. And then his parents had gone through a really bad divorce, and she moved back to New Hampshire, which I think her family was originally from, and took the kids. And his father was really, really intoxicated and caused the collision that he died in. Uh, And it was one of the situations where the car became on fire, and bystanders tried to, like, get him out, but he was on fire unfortunately yikes that's yeah and that's just a brutal way to think about your father passing away yeah yeah so he was a really really sensitive kid who liked playing the guitar and he really liked music and by all accounts everyone said he was like a gentle soul his three best friends were also a couple of brookers J.R. Latimy was a bookish kid who loved cars and dreamed of being a mechanic someday His parents' home was something of a center for all of the neighborhood kids, a warm and welcoming family that always offered a meal and a couch to crash on. Indeed, their other friend, Ralph Welch, was actually living with the Latimies due to a bad situation at home. Ralph, sinewy and with a broken face, was a little older and considered the best fighter and strongest of the group. Pete Randall rounded out the tough group, a loyal, diehard friend who, despite a clean-cut look and innate intelligence, always seemed to have a burning simmer of anger beneath his cool eyes. The kids liked drinking, scoring Coke when they could. Oh, my God. Fil- mm-hmm. In high even school? The, even the high school kids, yep. What? And filming themselves doing typical teenage hijinks like riding their bikes off ramps and into piles of brush. So it's very jackass before there was jackass over here. Just dumb kids. <laughs> Just kids being dumb, doing dumb things. My brother did that sort of thing all the time oh, with God. his group of friends. Throughout the winter, Pam would meet with Billy, Cecilia, Karen, and Tracy several times a week on Saturdays and after school to work on the Orange Juice video. The concept was simple. They settled on rap lyrics, which were predictably terrible, <laughs> and acted out scenes depicting Orange Juice's role in the life of modern and primitive man. It's 
really bad. I suggest you either YouTube it or watch the documentary I mentioned um, that's from Investigation Discovery on Hulu because they actually take samples of this orange juice commercial and it's terrible. And it also has Pam and her 18-year-old friend like dressed up like cave women and it's very scanty. Like she wasn't just filming these high school students and letting them do it. She was in the video. She was participating. She was very, very, very much like one of the kids herself and much less like an advisor. Director. Yes, director. She often took them out to Wendy's or to hang out at Salisbury Beach or even to Sneakers, the teenage non-alcoholic dance club near the beach. Before long, Pam's role as an authority figure was non-existent. She was like the older, more popular head of the clique. As Pam spent more and more time with the worshipful teenagers, her marriage to Greg suffered. The couple had always had divergent interests, and they now were spending most of their time apart, even taking separate vacations. Greg and his friends going skiing in Canada, while Pam took a cruise to Mexico with her parents. Yikes, that's not good. Not a good sign. But a week or so before Christmas 1989, things got particularly stormy when Greg failed to come home one night. At home the next morning, Pam demanded to know where he slept. Though Greg responded, you wouldn't like the truth, she pushed and he admitted that he, near blackout drunk, had spent the night with another woman. (gasps) Oh, no. Uh, Pam did not take this very well, obviously, but they resolved working on their issues and trying to get over it. Another night, not long after, after a holiday party with Greg's parents, Pam showed up at the Smarts house and insisted Greg had hit her. Greg's dad stormed their condo to straighten his son out and found Greg drunk and confused, denying that he had hit her. But he was like totally wasted. Blackout, yeah. Yeah. The next day, Bill Smart suggested that Greg lay off hard liquor if he couldn't remember striking his wife. Now – Later on, Pam would say that the slap had been accidental, like he was drunk and flailing. Yeah, but like if you don't know what you're doing to the point to where you're accidentally hitting your wife either, like yes, that shouldn't exactly. be happening in your home. Yeah, so there's – it's it's like kind of – she says later that he was never intentionally violent with okay. her to, to the court. She yeah. says something very different to the teenage kids. So I think it's important to note that later on, she officially says he was never intentionally abusive, but obviously he did have some sort of issue with drinking. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I I mean, he could also have just have been depressed. Absolutely. I feel like when you're depressed and you drink, you get so much more intoxicated than you would if you weren't depressed because it just exacerbates it. I definitely think also, too, people were being like, oh, you and Pam are perfect. You're so happy. They were young. They they haven't been married that long. Yeah. Um, and that would definitely exacerbate some depression <clears throat> if you knew the truth was that your marriage was already in shambles and you'd been barely married for six a months. A year. Yeah. That's yeah. Yikes. Yep. Well, the marriage seemed to be crumbling. None of the couple's friends were privy either to the one-night stand or the alleged slap until many months later. They were still acting as though they had a perfectly happy, stable marriage. Meanwhile, Pam found respite with her teenage fan club. She encouraged Billy's crush, even issuing him passes to get out of free study periods so that they could spend more time together, which is a recipe for disaster. And even worse is this story, which created one of the most famous images of Pamela Smart, 
One day, Pam brought in some undeveloped film and gave it to Billy. The teenager had told her that Ken and Karen Knight, his mother's landlords and upstairs neighbors, owned a one-hour photo shop in Seabrook. Billy said he could get Pam a discount and would see that the Knights got the film. Later, Pam and Billy drove over to the store on Route 1 to pick up the finished prints. In the CRX, Pam opened the package and laughed. Inside were photos of her and Tracy Collins posing in two-piece bathing suits on a bed. Pam, heavily made up, wore a black and white bikini. The two women had taken pictures of each other for a modeling portfolio, Pam would later say, in a variety of poses mimicking the kind found in men's magazines. She brought the pictures to work the next day, telling Billy that neither she nor Tracy thought they were very good, and if the 15-year-old wanted some of the pictures, he could take them. Otherwise, Pam would just throw them out. Billy said, why not? He took about 15. That is quite the collection. That's crazy. You already know somebody has a crush on you. There's already so many boundaries being crossed with this amount of time that they're spending together alone. And then you're going to hand him masturbation material? Yeah, for his spank bank. Exactly. Also, I love that they say um, that they're in poses for men's magazines. (laughs) Yeah, wait, wait, hold on. It's on the cover of the book. I'm putting it up to the screen. Do you see this picture? Oh, my God. I mean, I think that's going to be the cover story for our our podcast. Oh, my God. I love it. Guys, we're definitely – if you haven't – if you've heard of Pamela Smart, you've probably already seen this picture, but we're definitely going to put one of these – men's magazine pose pictures that she gave to Billy Flynn on the Instagram, if not the cover story for the Instagram podcast. Men's magazine. It cracks me up. Uh Uh-huh. So she's clearly enjoying the attention Billy is giving her. Not long after the photo incident, Pam confided in Cecilia that she had a secret. Cecilia, sit down, Pam said. I have to tell you something. I think I'm in love with Bill. Cecilia thought the idea was ridiculous. Pam was her hero, the woman who had it all together, and she was in love with a 15-year-old kid. (laughs) Pam asked Cecilia to fetch Billy so she could reveal her feelings. Like, this to me is insane. This is like you're spending way too much time with teenagers because you're becoming one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But when Bill did come, Pam stammered her way around the conversation until a very confused Billy had to leave to catch his bus. Also, catch his bus. Realize what you're dealing with if he has to catch his school bus. (laughs) Like, really? You're going to do this? Yeah, he can't even drive. No. The next day, on February 5th of 1990, Billy skipped study period so he could visit Pam and get to the bottom of what she had been trying to tell him. Finally, she said, do you ever think about me when I'm not around? Oh, my God. Oh, no. Well, I think about you all the time, she finished. Billy Flynn could not believe his ears. His dream woman, the beautiful Pamela, was interested in him. Poor kid. Ugh, he's just getting played like a yo-yo. She concluded that she did not know what to do with her feelings because she was married, but that Billy was constantly on her mind. The period was almost finished by the time Billy left her office, giddy, confused, hopeful, probably a little horny, and marginally in disbelief. The two continued to grow closer over the next couple weeks, Pam confiding in both Bill and Cecilia the problems in her marriage. She spoke of verbal and physical abuse that she suffered at Greg's hands, that she wished she had never married at all, and how desperately unhappy she was. Billy began to not just view Greg as a rival, but as a hated nemesis who abused the most wonderful woman he had ever known. Yep. Of course, he's getting protective. Of course. 
Only a couple days after she revealed her feelings to Bill towards him, she gingerly inquired whether he might know someone in Seabrook who would kill someone for money. Wow. As fast. She did not wait. At first, she seemed to be joking, but as they walked further down the line, Pam explained why divorce wasn't an option for her. Greg was obsessed with her, she said. He'd hound her till her dying day. There would be no room for the relationship she wanted to explore with Billy. Furthermore, Greg would get everything they owned, the cars, the furniture, her beloved dog. She doubted her salary would cover finding an apartment near the seacoast so she could be with him. However, working in life insurance had prompted Greg to take out his own policy. So if something did happen to him, things would be a lot different. Also, does she realize she can't live with a 15-year-old? <laughs> I don't think she ever intended to live with him or okay. date him after this. Yeah, she's selling him on something that she never planned on Ugh. executing. Billy told her he knew no one who would kill for money. I mean, for Christ's sakes, he's a 15-year-old kid. Who does she think he's, he is? The mafia? Like, who just moved back from California. Yeah, he's not like in deep with the mob over here. He figured she'd eventually let the idea go. Obviously, no one would take this seriously. One day, shortly after this conversation, the two found themselves alone at Billy's house and began making out in his bedroom to Motley Crue's starry eyes. Pam making the first move. My God. If you are a grown woman with a career and a husband and you find yourself in a teenager's room making out probably on a pile of his dirty, stinky clothes, you've made some very poor choices in life. Oh, man. I mean, he's probably got like a bunch of like jizz socks lying around from our photos too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And to be totally fair, because we talk about what creepers dudes are who prey on teenage girls, she's a fucking creeper. Yeah, she's she's a predator. She's a predator. She's disgusting. This is this is predatory. You know, manipulating. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's the same bullshit that the guys have done in this story. Grooming. She's grooming him. Yep. Yep. So they begin sneaking around and stealing kisses. Billy was elated and deeply in love. He hinted to his best friend. Yeah, of course. This is his first real relationship. Oh, this breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. So he's talking to his best friends about his relationship. And at first, they don't believe him. Of course they don't. She's no. a grown-up, you know? And then one day, they all witness Pam kissing Billy goodbye passionately while dropping him off at JR's. So one day at school, she asked Bill if he has ever seen the sexy film Nine and a Half Weeks. I haven't seen it, but I've heard that it's very hot. So we should probably put it on like a date night docket for our respective (laughs) husbands at some point. But I don't know if it's like really hot or if it's like cheesy hot. Apparently there's a strip tease number where Kim Bassinger performs for Mickey Rourke and Pam wanted to do a similar dance for Billy. Of course, he was titillated, but he couldn't imagine when they would get the opportunity. Less than two weeks after she first revealed her feelings to Bill, Greg went on a ski trip around Valentine's Day, and Pam invited Cecilia and Bill to spend the night at her condo. So basically, Cecilia was only there to give her cover. Like, if the neighbors saw a teenage boy coming over, they'd be really suspicious. Versus if they saw a couple teenage kids coming over, she could be like, oh, they're just kids I'm helping with a project or something. And is this the same? This is in 1990 still, so it's just the same. It's like a week after she told Billy she has a crush on him. It's only been two weeks since she revealed her feelings. Wow, that is crazy. 
Yeah, she is moving so fast. Okay, so that night Billy told his mother that he was staying at JR's and the two teens and Pam rented some VHS tapes, including the steamy nine and a half weeks. After the movie was over, the two left Cecilia downstairs and went to Pam's bedroom, bringing the speakers up to enjoy some music. Pam changed into turquoise and white lingerie and performed a striptease to who other than Van Halen's Black and Blue. I cannot believe this. Yeah, isn't this absurd? Billy was, of course, blown away. Oh my god, he literally probably did not know what to do with himself. No, afterwards the two had sex and 15-year-old Billy lost his virginity to his 22-year-old media advisor. Ugh. I mean, you have such a bond in general usually with the person you lose your virginity to. She is just ensnaring him. That's a seven-year difference. Which isn't a big deal when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. No, but it is a huge fucking deal. Huge fucking deal at this age. Huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 15, he's a baby. He's a baby. He's a baby. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. So basically at that point, they have sex on the bed, then on the floor. And at one point, Billy even went downstairs to get a cup of ice so they could reenact a famous sex scene from the film. At one point, Cecilia, bored of hanging around downstairs by herself, peeked in the bedroom on the two and discovered them having sex, Pam, on top of Billy. Oh, no. So she knows. The next day, she dropped Cecilia off first and then pulled over to talk to Billy. She told the boys sadly that this was probably the last time they could be together. Greg didn't go away very often, and the opportunities were too few. There was just no good answer. They both started crying. Billy told her he wanted to be with her and he'd do anything to make it happen. Then there was no choice, Pam said. The only way they could be together is if Billy killed Greg. Oof. Is this all, did this all come out from Billy? This came out from Billy. Yeah. Can you imagine being manipulated like that at 15? Oh, he's, he's so devastated in this. When we get to like how he turns and why it happens and then his testimony and everything that happens to him later, he's completely destroyed by this but he's about to do something really really bad so this is why we'll talk about it later like what sympathy do we have for the killer you know yeah so anyway when it's a child who has been manipulated by an adult who should know better there has to be some semblance of sympathy there you know what i mean like it really because he should not have to worry about a predator coming after him and convincing him to do this and luring him in and fucking Mm -hmm. him. Also think about the kids that she targeted. She chose kids that didn't have stable home lives, who were from the poor side of town that didn't get have economic opportunities. And she took them out for meals and out for drinks. She bought him alcohol. She definitely courted these kids purposely because she knew she could prey upon them. Yeah. So when Billy finally got out of the car, he still wasn't convinced that that's really what Pam wanted. He figured that they were both just being emotional. Over the next couple months, the two engaged in a full-blown affair, having sex whenever they could. His bedroom, a Seabrook ballpark, the back of her Honda, parked at various lots in the beach. They didn't bother hiding the affair from his friends or Cecilia. They exchanged sexually explicit love letters and went on teenage-style dates to the boardwalk in Salisbury Arcades. 
Throughout the courtship, Pam often brought up the idea of Billy murdering her husband, eventually discussing the plot openly nearly every day. (laughs) It's just insane. Somewhere along the way, Billy had relented that he could probably do it, slowly worked on by Pam through a dangerous cocktail of love, sex, manipulation, and the bottles of Southern comfort she would buy for the boy. Oh my god. I know. SoCo. Woof. Ugh. I've made so many SoCo and Lime shots in my life. I don't even want to talk about it. I can't. The smell. They eventually decided the best idea was to make it look like a burglary at a time when Pam had an airtight alibi during a school board meeting. Pam told the boy to tie back his long hair to avoid identification later and to, of course, wear gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints. She would leave the back door and cellar doors open. Inside, he could tear the place up and take anything he wanted. She even told him to put the little shih tzu in the basement before the crime so the dog wouldn't react strangely to Billy after. Cecilia was there for most of the plotting and planning. So Cecilia's like sitting in her office for all of these conversations. And she never really believed that it was actually going to happen. She said later the reason she didn't think it would happen was because of Billy. He just wasn't a violent kid. She even said to Pam, why do you even bother? Billy's never going to do it. And I definitely think this is even part of the plan in a way. I think talking about it so much and over the course of a few months really desensitized these teenagers to realizing that they're plotting a real person's murder. It's not yeah. a role-playing game. you yeah. know. And they don't know Greg, so they don't have any sort of personal connection with him to make it seem real. He's kind of Be- this fictitious – Yes, and he's awful. Based yeah. on what Pam has said about him, he's abusive, he's terrible, he abuses her, he kicks the dog, he, yeah. you know. So what they're hearing is that he is this enemy, this total terrible monster human. He's not a real person to them, you know. <sighs> Plus, it's important to remember, like I said before, how invested these kids had become in Pam and what she provided for them, you know. Yeah. Both Cecilia and Billy deeply wanted to feel that they were good and loved and special, and Pam gave them that. With Billy, it was through sex and affection, and with Cecilia, it was letting her be an intimate friend and part of her inner circle. Seems crazy, but I think eventually the kids just accepted the murder plot as part of Pam, kind of like a love tax. Like, this is just something that we need to do in order to keep her in our life, you know? Yep. So now they just needed to get their hands on a gun. A woman who worked with Cecilia at Papagino's told her that her husband kept a gun in the glove box of their car. But when Billy broke into the car while Cecilia knew the woman was working, he came up empty-handed. On a dinner break with another coworker, 20-year-old Cindy Butt, which is her real name. I, I thought it was a typo at first, but it's Cindy Spelled Butt. B-U-T-T, yes. You are lying. They couldn't add an E on there for her? I know. Uh, No, it's bad. Cindy. Poor Cindy. Cecilia confessed that she had a deeply unhappy friend who wanted someone to kill her husband. Cindy thought it was probably just a teen's melodramatic tall tale and didn't take the story seriously. I mean, why would you? We were talking to a 15-year-old, you know? Yeah. But did she give her a gun? She did later. Yeah. In March, Pam decided it needed to be done that evening. So now we're talking about she revealed her feelings on February 5th. Mm-hmm. And by March, she's already demanding that he get the job done. So she, she had a late board meeting that night and she left the doors open and she just told him to do it because she had an airtight alibi. Billy eventually called her at 10 p.m. at the media center and said, look, I'm sorry I didn't do it. I couldn't get the gun and I couldn't get a car. Pam exploded into rage. 
You don't love me, giving a bizarre twist on an ageless complaint. If you did, you would do this for me. It's the only way we can be together. And if you loved me, you'd want us to be together. Until this point, Billy had only seen Pam's sweetness and her tears. That was all he had needed. Now he met her fury. Crying, he assured her that he cared about her and that he would kill Greg. I know you're never going to do this, she said. You don't have any intention of doing this. And I can't go on seeing you like this when I know we're never going to be able to be actually together. So that's it. It's over between us. Then she hung up. It was insanity. They were talking about snuffing out a human life, but Pam made it sound as if every woman should expect as much from a lover. What could be more simple? Love me? Kill my husband. Billy went to bed that night, wounded and bewildered. The next day at school, he kept his distance from the media center. He was certain that it was over with Pam. Then Cecilia took him aside and said Smart wanted to talk to him. Billy went over. Pam apologized for getting so angry. What's more, she told him not to worry. She had another meeting scheduled within the next month. Billy could kill Greg then. That's when I started getting serious about it, Billy would say later in court, because I thought that if I do something like not go up or anything again, she's going to leave me and that's going to be it. So this is the time that I started really talking to JR and Pete about it. Dude, what did what did Billy's mom say about all this? Do you cover that at all? Uh, a little bit. There's one like kind of line about Ugh. it. I mean, she was horrified. This I is- mean- all of the parents in this were completely devastated. Um, I'm going to get more of an insight on JR's dad, who had been kind of like I said, the community father to all. Yeah. yeah. There was a lot of rage about how this all went down with the, the, the families of the boys, you know? Attempt number two happened in April, this time with Billy throwing his friends into the plot and Pam leaving the keys in her car so the boys would have a murder vehicle. Ugh. This time, Billy, feeling a gut sense of ill ease, got purposely lost like he wasn't driving his friend jr who had his driver's license was driving and he kind of gave them the wrong directions on purpose because he really didn't want to do it and so by the time they got back on track and they reached the smart condo greg was already home so they had lost the opportunity to ransack the house first and gain the element of surprise to kill greg when when he entered the home so they all decided to call it off that they weren't going to do it they would have to do it another time and i think that All of the kids were clearly relieved about this. But, you know, once again, Pam was super pissed off. So ridiculous. So Greg seemed to be starting to understand that his marriage might be over around this time. I don't think he thought she was plotting to kill him with teenagers, but he realized that things were not going well. On a trip to Atlantic City with a friend, he confided that he was ready to buy a house and have kids, but Pam refused. He was pretty sure that they were heading for divorce. Pam wasn't coming home at times and oftentimes wasn't where she said she'd be. So there was like one specific occasion that one of his friends talked about that Pam was supposed to come meet them and she called and said she was at work. And so he was like really suspicious and the friend said he had never seen him like this. And so he told his friend to get in the car so they could drive over to the parking lot of the school and, in his words, surprise her. But he was clearly checking up on her and her car wasn't there. And so they went back to their condo and they were drinking more. And by the time she got home, they erupted into a huge fight about it. And she managed to somehow, like, turn the conversation on him and make it about him. Of course. And so the friend was like, whoa, I didn't see this coming. Well, she can blame everything for the rest of their relationship on the fact that he had that one night stand exactly and, and I that's think what she does yeah yeah which I also think she seems like a really vindictive person and 
I keep coming back to like, why did she have to kill him? They're so young. They didn't have kids. There's no custody battles. There's not a lot of money at stake. I mean, there is a life insurance policy, but it's not like a crazy amount that we've heard of before. Yeah. Um, why, why would you do that? They didn't own their condo. She wasn't going to inherit a great number of things. Yeah. Um, and I think that some part of her, A, wanted revenge for what he did. Like there was a vindictive part of it. And I think that B, she always wanted to become a reporter. She always wanted attention and limelight. And I think that she thought being the sympathetic, young, beautiful widow of a murdered fellow would get her attention, which it certainly did, you know? Yeah, I think also too, I mean, she probably didn't want anyone realizing that he isn't the devil. Mm-hmm. as well because if people ended up getting to and that's probably why she fast-tracked it as well if people found out that he's working hard providing for them making double Big the money she no. is yep I think also she was in a rush to get this done with before he told more people that their marriage was really bad yep you know because now this one friend knew he's embarrassing parents it's embarrassing for her yep. and I think also she would have been embarrassed at getting divorced before they had even been married for a year. That would look like failure to her. Yeah, yeah. And she's always been somebody who did pretty well in school without trying. And so I think she's used to a certain level of success. And this would be looked at as a failure. Yeah, still don't feel bad for her at all. No, not even a little bit. Nope. The boys agreed, but they wanted to be paid. So this is basically, like I said, she was pressuring Billy more and more to get it done sooner rather than later. And He, in turn, I don't think he had the balls to do it himself. And I think that's why he involved his friends, like to, you know, have somebody at the house with him, to have somebody in a getaway car. He was just so worried about getting caught, you know? Everything, killing someone. Everything, about killing someone, yeah. So he did go to his two best friends and he asked them. And the boys agreed, but they wanted to be paid. So originally the boys wanted $1,000, which Pam said no to each. And Pam agreed to pay each boy, this is JR and Pete, $500 each from the life insurance money payout in installments of $50 a week so that the cash flow wouldn't arouse suspicion. $500, a week. This is a very low rent hit. Oh my God, boys. No, you should have asked for more. <laughs> Business completed, the boys decided to use JR's grandmother's car and a gun he had lifted from his dad. That evening, on May 1st, 1990, Greg Smart had just closed a deal on his last sales call of the day. He left the home of Charles and Nancy Sargent of Pelham, his new clients at 8.30 p.m., and settled into his truck for the 30-minute drive home. Pam was at a board meeting where her attendance was not mandatory, so the others were slightly perplexed (laughs) as to why she was unnecessarily sitting in. She's like, hi, guys, I'm here. Do I need to sign yeah. in? Do I need to sign There's in like anywhere? This whole part where she was like arguing about some issue that wasn't in her purview. And the person was like, Pam, why are you even here? You're not supposed to. It was about like construction that was happening in a building that she had no say over. She's like, you're fucking up my alibi. Exactly. So it was just really weird that she was there. And Billy Flynn, JR, and Pete were preparing to ransack the Smarts condo and kill Greg Smart with a 38 caliber snub nose revolver. So JR waited in the getaway car at a pizza place near the condo. Billy and Pete let themselves in through the basement doors and promptly put Halen, the Shih Tzu, downstairs. Moving upstairs, they ripped apart the master bedroom. A Pete Randall unloaded all of Pam's jewelry into a pillowcase. 
Pam had already taken the precaution of wearing all of her favorite pieces that day, a ring on practically every finger. Wow. They loaded some other objects, a portable TV and VCR player near the back door for a quick getaway, and they waited in the dark for their murderous moment. Suddenly, Greg's Toyota pickup appeared outside. Jesus, Pete. He's here, Billy said. He's here. Calm down, Randall said, standing. Let's go. The door opened, and Greg Smart took a step inside, flicking on the light and calling out for the dog. No response. For seconds, they all stood there when he saw them. Greg, Billy, and Pete, motionless. Then Flynn leapt out. Greg yelped and attempted to retreat, but Pete soon joined Billy in pushing Greg to the ground in the foyer. Billy began to hit Greg while Greg tried to block his face from the blows. Pete yelled, get down on your knees, while Greg said, shocked, almost whispering, don't hurt me, dude. What do you want, dude? Just shut up, Pete responded, waving a knife in his face. Where's my dog? What have you done with my dog? Greg pleaded. Nothing. The dog's fine, Pete said, and then demanded Greg hand over his wedding ring. I can't give it to you. My wife would kill me, he said. What? Oh, it's like she is killing you. Oh, She's killing you right no. now. Isn't that heartbreaking? Oh, oh, Ugh. So apparently Pete was kind of shook by him saying that as well. So he had originally planned on slitting Greg's throat with a knife. What? What? He was afraid that the noise from the gun was going to alert the other neighbors because they're in a very high-density condominium, and it's at nighttime. Everybody's home, you know? So the, their original plan was that Pete was going to slit Greg's throat, but Pete realizes he can't do it. So he gestured to the gun in Billy's pocket, and Billy nodded, pulling out the weapon, cocking it, and pointing it at Greg's head. God forgive me, he said, and he fired. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Greg slumped to the ground, instantly dead. The boys sprinted to the back door, scooping up the pillowcase of pilfered goods and sprinted towards the waiting getaway car. They piled in and shouted, go, go, go. At first, JR didn't believe them. Why? What are you talking about? Did you do it? Yes, we killed him. Go, Billy screamed. The car ride home took on an otherworldly quality. I'm like Morris just sad about their future. Oh, God, it's devastating. I mean, there was really four lives lost that night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pete and Billy seemingly shocked they actually just murdered someone. J.R. not really seeming to comprehend what really just happened. I mean, he was just in the car the Of course, time. yeah. So th- they ended up, like, putting on the radio and, like, singing silly songs, which eventually, like, came up in court that they, like, seemed so callous. But I think that they really just didn't know what to do or to think or, like, they were not really reconciling reality, you know? They're little kids, yeah. Yeah. So eventually they ended up back at another friend's house where they divvied up the mostly worthless costume jewelry and Pete and Billy filled them in on the events at the condo. Pam, meanwhile, was about to come home and prepare for the acting job of her life. She knows everything. Oh, she's so annoying. Oh, yeah. After Greg's body was discovered, the investigators were puzzled by Pam's straightforward and tearless composure. That was basically like – She was, like, wailing when all the neighbors were around, but, like, very quickly she, like, gathered herself and, like, seemed to not go through the denial phase. She was immediately like, 
well, I guess I just have to, you know, move on. Whereas most spouses of somebody who meet an untimely death just say no over and over again. They refuse to actually confront the reality, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's apparent as fuck that she... Also really interesting is when she when she opened the door, she didn't kneel down and go to him and stay with him. She didn't touch him. She Sounds ran familiar. to the herself. It's exactly like David Brown. Father of the year, yeah. Father of the year where if there's a situation where a supposedly beloved spouse is injured or hurt and the spouse who finds them doesn't go to their body, doesn't try to help them, doesn't stay with them, that like no. goes somewhere else, then there's something very fishy there. And I feel like cops always know that too. Absolutely. 100%. So yeah, there was definitely that that they kind of thought was weird that she had this incredible level of composure. The crime scene also confused them because it it did appear as though Greg interrupted a burglary, but his wallet and wedding ring remained. And even more troubling was the fact that the burglars had decided to rob the condominium at night. Like I said, these were closely packed in condos and it was a pretty big apartment complex so it seems very unlikely that robbers would choose to strike at random when everybody including all of the neighbors would be home when they could have struck during the day when most of the people were at work you know yeah yeah and do they have any sort of like neighborhood um how did they get in like an access gate or anything I feel like most of the condos do um I think this was the type that it's like kind of like to the outside, like they all have their own little porches and stuff. It's almost uh-huh. like, I don't know, but kind of like the townhouse type situation. Like all of the stairs are like on the outside. Okay. So there's, you can get access to any of the condos, like from, they have their own private entrance. There's no like lobby or anything. Okay. Yeah. Like she has her own porch and she has her own uh, basement The police quickly investigated and dismissed theories that Greg could have been involved with gambling or drugs. Other than the odd joint and trip to Atlantic City, there was no evidence that he was in deep with anyone in either of those situations. However, most frustrating for the investigators was that the widow kept insisting on doing television interviews and sharing (laughs) confidential info on the case with the public. She was doing um, interviews with television reporters within two days of the murder. Oh, my God. His Mm -hmm. parents had to have been dying. They were beside themselves. The police chief himself begged her to stop going to the media and even took Pam's father aside and pleaded with him to speak with his daughter because she was saying stuff like, oh, they think it's a, a burglary and, like, being like, they don't really have any leads right now. Like, she was talking about really private, confidential information. Yeah. Nevertheless, she continued to grant every single interview and even reached out directly to media outlets for more coverage. One television journalist who built his career on this case was Bill Spencer, only a few years older than Pam, and actually the young reporter who beat her out for the on-air reporting position at WMUR. Oh, my God. When she applied to the local New Hampshire station, this is the one, and he got the job. Wow. Yeah, he's on the dock. He kind of looks like a young-ish Pat Sajic from Wheel of Fortune. Oh my god, hilarious. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's, and he looks like pretty young. You're like, oh, were you 10 when you covered this case? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's pretty good on the documentary too. You, you'd like him. Bill was struck by the cold professionalism of the supposedly grieving widow and her habit of emotionlessly producing her own segments, he said. 
She's a public relations person. That's her job at the school, Spencer recalled thinking. She studied media in college, and I thought, it's so bizarre she's going to PR her husband's murder. I thought maybe this was just her way of dealing with incredible grief. So this is when the the part where I was like, okay, Andy's rage meter is going to go off. All of Pam's statements to the press seemed centered around her, her inner strength, her need to move forward, barely days after the tragic homicide. As you'll recall, um, they murdered him only six days before her there, one year anniversary. So she even did a television segment with Bill Spencer on their one year anniversary like telling Bill, like taking their piece of their wedding cake that had been in the freezer for a year, taking it out and talking about it. And she's like, what if I got the wedding cake and I took it out and like talked about him? And like, he's like, this is so bizarre. But listen to the types of things that she's saying, because it's going to make your blood boil. Are you ready? Yes. I've had a lot of family and friends who have been around me, but most of my strength has come from inside. Just knowing that if Greg was here, if this was one of our friends, he would be saying that this was awful, but that things would work out. He would always say to me that when I would get upset about things, you don't need to worry about everything. It will be okay. It'll work out. And I know he'd be there trying to comfort me, remind me that life's not fair and you have to take what happens. You can't control everything. Knowing how short life can be, that's scary for me. I'll tell everybody until the day I die that from this tragedy, I'll learn to live life to the fullest. If there ever comes a time at a crossroads in my life and there's something in my heart that I want to do, I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm not going to hesitate anymore because you never know when you won't have a life. That's what she's saying about him. She's not talking about who he was or how she misses him or what what made him a great human being. It's just all about her. Okay. How soon after this do they catch this bitch? It's not too long because you're going to lose your mind. (laughs) But wait, listen, I have one more for you because this is really crazy. Okay. Sometimes I ask myself, I can't figure out where the strength is coming from, but it seems like it's coming from inside maybe. Maybe it's part of Greg or whatever that's helping me go on with everything you know. And I feel like if this happened at any point in Greg's life, it wouldn't be fair. And it wouldn't make sense then. It's just an awful tragedy. And now, you know, there's no better time in his life for this to happen. What? What is, what is she saying? She's saying that now was a good time for him to be killed? What interview is that from? With this Bill Spencer? From, this is from the one with Bill Spencer uh, on her anniversary. Oh, my God. There was like, this was really like a great time for him to like be murdered. <laughs> yeah, she has, it's really hard for me. She has like kind of a New Hampshire, very flat affect. So maybe we can get a, a news bite because I'm not doing the accent. <laughs> any justice i'm not doing i'm not trying if anyone's like that doesn't sound like pam smart it does not sound like pam smart i just can't do yeah and that's one of the things that i think is keeping me going that if greg was here right now he'd be saying that things like life's not always fair and you have to take what happens in stride and move on and move forward what Babe, it's all, it's all good. I got murdered. Just you got it. You got to keep your head up and keep going. You got to keep your head up and keep going. He's been dead for less than a week. It's your one year wedding anniversary. This is an absurd thing to talk about. This oh, is a crazy thing. God. Well, she's taking the frozen wedding cake top out and talking about herself and how she really thinks he just want to move on. Also, I'm surprised she didn't get some like t-shirts made with like inspirational quotes from Greg. 
Well, she was still benefiting herself. So obviously this case is getting a lot of media attention. They're young sweethearts. She's good on camera. And she sets up a Greg Smart Memorial Fund so that well-wishers we can go. donate to it. And guess what the fund benefits? The, all of the donations go directly to the media studies course Pam was intending on teaching. She said that Greg was obsessed with her teaching this course that had just been approved by the school board. And he was so excited for her that she thought that all of the money that went into the course, there'd be a little bit of Greg in every student that went through it. Wow. Uh-huh. Whew. So before Greg's body was even cold, she began shopping for a new car she planned to buy when the insurance money cleared and started partying hard. She reconnected with her high school boyfriend, good old Sausage. Stop. Mm-hmm. And became a groupie at his Van Halen cover band performances. Oh my God. Yeah. So there's this whole part in the book where Greg hadn't even been gone for, you know, a couple weeks. It had been like only a couple weeks. And she starts going to every performance of this band. And his bandmates were really pissed because she kept getting drunk and getting on stage and singing. And she was apparently really shitty at singing. And so the band members finally had to pull Paul, her ex-boyfriend, over and be like, don't let her sing. Because if somebody comes into this bar and sings, sees her on stage and connects it with our band, they're going to think like she's our real lead singer or something. Yeah. yeah. So they were horrified. And so she's like doing that. And I think some of her friends and family were some of them were horrified. Obviously, his family was horrified. And her, the people that supported and loved her were like, well, how else is she supposed to cope with tragedy? She's a young woman. You know, what is she going to do? Sit out, sit home every night and just cry? Like, no, this is like her way of coping, you know? So while the cops exhaustively chased down leads, Pam told reporters definitively that it was a burglary gone wrong. Some junkie looking for a $10 high, she said. That's who killed her husband. So she's trying to create her own narrative yeah. in the media. Finally, on the night of May 14th, so the, the murder had happened May 1st, so it's been two weeks, the police got an intriguing tip. The woman on the phone was nervous. She refused to give her name, saying she didn't want to get involved. I think Things it's were Cecilia. Not, it's, it's somebody connected to Cecilia. So she said, things were not as they may seem with the killing of the young man in the condo complex. And she had the name of someone who knew a lot more. His wife planned him to be killed, she said of Gregory Smart, so she could collect the insurance money. And he was killed in home, and she came home, and she put on a wonderful performance. The person you can talk to about it is a minor. The detective wanted to keep her talking, so he prodded her with gentle affirmations. Yeah, he said. She's 15 years old. Okay. But she knows the whole ordeal, the whole situation of what was going on. Is she a friend of this woman's? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I will not reveal my name or where I'm from, but I have heard this is from hearsay, but I'm damn scared silly. At first, the caller said she thought the 15-year-old's name was Cecilia Perkins, but soon she corrected that. It was Cecilia Pierce. So that woman was actually a woman named Louise Coleman another co-worker at Papa Gino's, and a friend of Cindy's. Cindy had kept quiet about what Cecilia had told her for two weeks after the murder, but the guilt was starting to get to her. She confessed what she knew about the crime to Louise, who was a 39-year-old pregnant single mother who, without telling Cindy what she was about to do, left Cindy's apartment, went directly home, and called the police. She said later, someone was killed, and that bothered me. 
to hear what I heard, I figured any little bit was going to help him because at that point, the police didn't know much of anything. Like I told him, I says, it's hearsay. If it helps, it helps. If it don't, it don't. But I feel like I did my civic duty. Yeah. And she did. Yeah. That little piece of hearsay would eventually break the case wide open. Good. The detectives did an initial interview with Cecilia, who was still blindingly loyal to Pamela. Oh so she my God. downplayed their closeness and revealed nothing about her knowledge of the crime. The only interesting tidbit she accidentally gave police was the fact that she had stayed over at Pam's for the week before Greg's death when he had been in Rhode Island. The police had already asked Pam for a list of guests and people who had been in the condo for the month before the murder so they could exclude fingerprints from the investigation. She had been thorough enough to even include the Culligan water delivery man, but failed to mention her student slumber party. They were on to something with Cecilia. Meanwhile, Pam was still kibitzing with her husband's killers. She was still communicating with the boys. They were still coming to her office at free periods. She told the boys that the police were chasing leads far off their track. The cops, she said, thought Greg had either interrupted a burglary or that it had been a professional hit. At one point, she told the boys happily that Greg carried more life insurance than she'd anticipated. In mid-May, so they paid out pretty quickly, Pam received $90,000 from his work policy. And she was due to receive another $50,000 from a personal policy. Altogether, that would be almost $280,000 in today's money. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not like the craziest number we've had as far as insurance payouts, but it is a lot of life insurance for a 22-year-old kid to have. And for they, they weren't even married a year. <laughs> exactly. The second lead that would contribute to the breaking of the case came from a very unlikely source, Ralph Welch. That was kind of the fourth buddy. Yep. Close friend of the boys and semi-adopted kid of the Latimies tearfully confessed to Diane and Vance, JR's parents, that he believed Vance's gun had been used to commit a murder. He hysterically recounted that Bill and Pete had killed a man while robbing him, and while their son had not participated in the larceny or murder, he had supplied the gun and driven the getaway car. These poor parents. When Vance checked on his thirty-eight, praying for some confirmation it hadn't been used, he found it perfectly clean an oddity for sure because he knew he hadn't cleaned it after the last time he went target shooting Mm. vance sent ralph to his girlfriend's house at this point it all came to a head because um ralph found out about what happened and he was really upset about it and he got into a fight with the boys and he was like particularly protective of jr and he was pissed that jr got caught up in this yeah because it shouldn't have had anything to do with him if billy was the one having the affair in his opinion billy should have been the one to handle it now he pulled two other kids into it you know yeah so the parents of jr sent him to his girlfriend's house to stay because they didn't even want the kids to be around him because obviously at this point he's ratting on them you know so then Vance made the excruciating decision to go to the police. I know, but like, so obviously I know you're going to go into the, the trial and mm-hmm. stuff, but like, do they get less of a punishment because they didn't actually murder him? Kind of. Because Billy see. pulled the trigger? Okay. Um, He dropped off the weapon for testing, saying he had reason to believe it was used to commit a murder, which I think is so incredible this is supposedly a community of people that very rarely involve the police and this is his son 
Yeah. And his son's friends and he's doing the right thing and he's like, I got to be clean with you yeah. guys. The Seabrook connection brought them back to Cecilia, who had been interviewed only days earlier, and slowly the pieces started to fall in place. The detectives next interviewed Ralph Welch. The interview is in the three-part doc, and it's heartbreaking. The kid is just a mess. He, through tears, tells the police about Bill's affair with Pam and what little he did know about the murder. They had tried to shield him from most of the information but he he knew enough meanwhile vance questioned his son jr at home and this is what vance later told the police um i think he also talked to the author of this book jr was sitting solemnly on the living room couch the boy's mother was over near the corner sobbing and vance was storming around the room shouting at his son hardly taking a second to grab his breath throwing in every few minutes why won't you answer me the boy had tried to explain, saying essentially that Billy was having an affair with Pam Smart, but before he could say much more, his father burst in. Then it's a good thing she didn't gangbang all of you, he yelled. What would you have done then? Wiped out the town of Derry? Which is a great line. Uh-huh. When his father composed himself, J.R. did the best he could to explain, using aliases, obvious lies, and refusals to answer to help his dad understand what had happened without telling the whole story. As far as Vance could make out, no one ever expected the killing to actually occur, if for no other reason than the kid who wanted Greg Smart dead was Billy Flynn. Did he do it? asked Vance. He said he did, said J.R. Do you believe that he could do it? Do you think he could do it? I'd bet everything that I own, said Vance. I'd bet one million bucks that he couldn't do it. Well, I know him better than you, said J.R., and I'd never believe he'd do it. But did he do it? Yes, said J.R. He said he did. That night, Vance returned to the Seabrook Police Department and told the detectives that it was apparent that the kids were involved in the murder. Ugh. Yeah. So the ballistics matched Vance's gun and the ammo of, to the bullet that killed Greg Smart, and the teenage killers were cooked. The boys were placed under arrest at 9.45 p.m. on June 11th. Technically, they were charged with juvenile delinquency, which, when charged as adults, would become first-degree murder for Billy and accomplice to first-degree murder for Pete and J.R. Bill Spencer broke the story of the arrests on the 11 o'clock evening news without naming their names due to their minor status. Pam, in a panic, began to call the police. She was told no one was available to talk to her, her school secretary, and, of all people, Bill's mother, Elaine to try and find out if it had been indeed her three boys who were arrested. So she had called Billy's house, I think, to get him on the phone, <laughs> hoping he wasn't arrested. And his mother answered. His mother knew why this had happened. And she confirmed that, yes, he had been arrested. And then she curtly suggested Pam get an attorney before she hung up on her. Wow. I feel like that was a very restrained response if somebody raped my kid and then put him up for murder i would have a lot more things to say to them Same. probably yeah Same. <laughs> so the next day bill spencer appeared on pam's doorstep expecting ebullition at the arrest of her husband's killers instead for the first time ever he found a disheveled distraught pamela who refused for the very first time ever to grant an interview Pam, what's wrong? How are you doing? He said. Pam closed the door in his face saying, 
nothing. But I can't comment, Bill. I really can't. I'm totally devastated by this. I can't comment. So everybody thought this was weird. Like she had been completely calm and collected talking about her husband's murder. But when the killers are caught and arrested, all of a sudden she's devastated. Yep. Not a normal response. No. So Cecilia was starting to get panicked as well. The cops knew she knew more than she was saying and started pressing hard on her. She finally, after, I mean, she really stuck firm through multiple interviews. She was yeah, really trying. Don't talk to the cops. You don't rat out, mm-hmm. and especially not Pam, who had such a mental hold on her. Yeah. You don't talk to the cops. Yeah, but eventually the cops came down pretty hard on her, and they started, like, intimidating her and her mother. And she could also face charges for, you know, uh, not helping. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So she finally confessed all she knew to her mother, who drove her to the police station and encouraged her to come clean. Finally, Cecilia spilled the whole story, including the sex act she witnessed at the smart home and the months of plotting and planning that had happened at the media center. The investigators were thrilled, but they still needed more. They needed to have Pam incriminate herself on tape, so they convinced a terrified Cecilia to tape their phone conversations. Pam, rightfully paranoid, was worried about her line being tapped and said little, suggesting that the two meet in person instead. This time, the cops fitted Cecilia with a body wire. So the poor girl was terrified. She was wearing this very clunky recording equipment, like under her clothes. And Pam even like went in for a hug at one point. So she thought for sure that this was going to be the end so she's like shitting bricks basically yeah and now she has to go in and try to trick pam into saying something about this so there's a lot about the tapes and like you can hear more on the documentary and if you get the book um teach me to kill they have like the whole transcript but i'm just going to read you some highlighted parts that kind of really make it seem like she's guilty so they're talking about the first time that pam wanted Billy to kill Greg and that when like her phone she thought her phone was tapped what Cecilia said to her you know what remember that time you let Bill use your car to go up there smart where Cecilia well that time if he hadn't have forgotten directions he would have killed Greg then and I know I really Cecilia continues and then I wouldn't even spent the next week with you so if I had smart I know but it's history now we can't talk about shit that should have happened inaudible Should have happened, though, you know. Um, The only thing is that, oh, yeah, remember, I don't know if my phone's been tapped, but if it was, there was a time when I was talking to you on the phone and you said to me, uh, you should have just gotten divorced, Cecilia. Yeah, something like that. And hopefully my phone wasn't tapped when you said that because I could have shit when you said that. But if any, if my phone is tapped and anybody asks about that, I'll I'll just say that you meant it like, why, why if you couldn't understand why I would have killed Greg? Because like, I would have just gotten divorced. And then later she's trying to get Cecilia not to take a lie detector test or cooperate with the police. They're going to be on trial for murder, you know. She's talking about the boys. They're not going to be believing you and them. All they want to know is, is there anybody else that knew about this before it happened? Because if there is, then they can really bag them. You know, but that's the thing. So I don't know, you know. I mean, I wish this wasn't the circumstances. You know, I hate the fact that you have to be interviewed. I hate the fact that you're scared. I hate the fact that you're probably going to have to take a lie detector test. But I don't know what to tell you. If I thought if you told the truth it was going to do you any good, that's one thing, but it's not. If you tell the truth, you cannot change what you know. You know, you can't. 
And if you tell the fucking truth, you're probably going to get arrested. And even if you're not arrested, you're going to have to go and you're going to have to send Bill. You're going to have to send Pete. You're going to have to send JR. And you're going to have to send me to the fucking slammer for the rest of our entire lives. And unfortunately, that's the situation you're in. And not only that, but your parents are going to be like, fucking Cecilia, you know, what the hell? I mean, I think your parents will get over the fact that you decided you didn't want to take a lie detector test. But I don't think they will get over the fact that for the next two years, you're going to be going to trials, sending everybody up, you know, to the slammer for the rest. I'm just saying. Wow. Mm-hmm. She's still trying to wow. manipulate the situation. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. So now the cops are excited. That was definitely enough to implicate Pam Good. and Collar, the real, you know, murderous mastermind. So on Wednesday, August 1st, Pam was arrested in her office at 1.05 p.m., Detective Pelletier, who was on the case, he's like a really um, handsome guy with a very 80s mustache. Okay. He looks like very um, Magnum P.I. over here. I think he was only like 28 when he was in charge of the case, too. So he was a wow. pretty young detective. Um, and he had pretty much the best arresting line I've ever heard. So he said to Pam when he entered her office, he said, hello. And she said, what's up? And he goes, well, Pam, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The good news is that we've solved the murder of your husband. The bad news is that you're under arrest. Oh, <laughs> my God. He says the line on the documentary, too, and you can tell that he's proud of himself for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela was arrested for first-degree murder and perp-walked from the building where a reporter snapped a picture of her in cuffs and scooped the story. Overnight, a regional murder case would become a national sensation. In mid-August, Rockingham County Superior Court Grand Jury indicted her on three charges. Accomplice to first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and witness tampering. Wow. Mm-hmm. For someone who liked attention, suddenly she was getting a ton of it. The case was featured on A Current Affair, Hard Copy, Sally Jesse Raphael, and Geraldo. Oh. Old Geraldo. Old Geraldo. Her trial was the first ever to be broadcast nationally by Court TV. In New Hampshire, bars would stay tuned to the trial all day as if it were an exciting sporting event. Leading up to the trial, the three boys had not only refused to talk, but had also refused any plea deal to implicate Pam. So this is definitely the Brookers thing where they're not going to talk about each other. They're not going to throw each other under the bus. Yeah. Like J.R. especially could have gotten a really sweet deal because he wasn't actually physically even in the room for the murder. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But they refused. The reason that they might not have talked other than just being Seabrookers was that the court hadn't yet ruled whether the boys were going to be tried as juveniles or adults. So they were only like around 16. They were all like between 15 and 17 when this Ugh. happened. And a compelling argument could be made that the egregiousness of the murder should necessitate a greater punishment than the most likely two years they would get in a juvenile hall, which it seems is what they would have gotten. They probably would have just been released around the time they were like 18. However... All three boys were certified as adults, meaning guilty verdicts could carry life sentences for all three in a real adult penitentiary, wow. which I don't know if that's fair. I mean, if you have to be 18 to vote, to go to war, to buy cigarettes, like how is it that legality on what your age is 
is like set in stone for some things, but then they can just change you being an adult at, at their whim. What they should do is they should have, I mean, obviously for something like murder for someone who's under the age of 18, the punishment should be more than two years. There should be some sort of exemplary, like, you know, it should be uh, extra, um, like an addendum. A New Hampshire thing, because remember when we talked about father of the year, Cinnamon was given 25 years to life, even though she was only 14. So, and she was also kept in a juvenile facility. Which I think is a better system than being like you're either a kid and you only get X amount of time or you are an adult because I don't think 16-year-old boys should be in a grown men's prison. No. That's some like Absolutely not. Puritan shit. Yeah, exactly. So They're like you're doing like an adult crime, you're going to get the adult punishment. Yeah, and I can totally understand also from like the smart family perspective, like I would be incensed if somebody killed my son or my family member and they only got two years because they were a teenager. Underage, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of seems like it's it's not very fair either way. There has to be a middle ground. Yeah. So now based like with facing a life sentence forever or even potentially like the death penalty, on January 22nd, 1991, Pete Randall cut a deal with the state. So he he made the first deal and basically JR and Billy reluctantly followed suit. Like their attorneys convinced them that they should do the same thing. And I don't think Pete would have gotten the deal if all three of them didn't turn. So they kind of it was like all for one and one for all here. Yeah. Um so in exchange for their testimony against Pam and pleas of guilty for second degree murder, Billy and Pete would receive 40 years in prison with 12 years deferred if they remained on good behavior. JR would serve 30 years with 12 years deferred, which essentially means, because I had to look up what the deferred part means, Mm -hmm. which essentially means Billy and Pete would serve a minimum of 28 years with good behavior and JR would serve 18. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So if if they didn't have good behavior, then they would end up serving more like term. 40 and 30. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. So this seems pretty harsh given They're that like, when we yeah. talked about Patty and Cinnamon, Patty got four years and Cinnamon got nine, you know? Yep. Yeah. It's- I mean, I think that there's a difference. Like he, she, he was a- absolutely groomed by Pam, but it was only over a course of a couple months where cinnamon and patty had been groomed basically since they were children yeah but their lives are over their lives are over absolutely they're over before they've begun so given the boys and cecilia's testimonies evidence of the affair and pam's own voice on the cecilia tapes the defense was not confident that they could be acquitted on all the charges the best that they could hope for would be a hung jury and the best way to go about getting that was to create doubt on the state's case yeah Another main argument for the case was that Billy being obsessed with Pam had orchestrated the murder by himself and the three boys were in a conspiracy to place the ba- to place the blame on Pam to receive lighter sentences and quote save their own hides. And I honestly feel like that could have been a compelling argument like you know he misconstrued he was trying to get rid of his rival his friends were there for him but there's Cecilia testimony about all the planning and Pam's own scheming on the tape. I mean, it seems yeah. ridiculous to try that, you know? Yeah. 
The prosecution's argument was that Pam seduced a teenager to kill her husband to get herself out of a bad marriage with over a quarter million dollars and all of the marital assets and, of course, the dog. So Bill's testimony at the trial was particularly heart-wrenching. The kid did not look like a hard-boiled killer. He looked like a heart-sick teen who made a fatal and gruesome mistake. He broke down in tears recounting the murder and apologized profusely to the Smart family. During his time on the stand, he showed more emotion than Pam had in the nearly year since her husband had been brutally murdered. Wow. He was just a mess. It was just waterworks the whole time. He was basically crying the whole time he was on the stand. And he's just skinny. He's like a skinny, young kid with like a mullet hairdo. Oh. Uh-huh. Pam herself did take the stand, dressed conservatively, of course, in a navy blue suit with a frilled high-collar blouse and a black bow in her hair. She confirmed the affair but refuted Billy and Cecilia's testimony, stating that it didn't actually begin sexually until March 24th, conveniently after Billy would have turned 16, too old for her to have been charged with felonious sexual assault. No, it was in February, and Mm -hmm. nice try. Exactly, which they know was when Greg went away, and of course the other people there witnessed it. She suggested that Billy had been in her basement after one of those sexual experiences to set up the argument that he, not she, left the bulkhead open for him and his friend to return and kill Greg later. So she basically said she knew nothing about the murder plot because they were saying, well, why did you leave? the basement door opened so he could get in and she goes he must have done it when he was at my house like he did it ahead of time I didn't know about it as far as the recorded conversations with Cecilia Pam tried to say that she thought Cecilia knew more than she let on about the murder of her husband so she was trying to get information from Cecilia (laughs) to eventually bring to the police she was doing her own investigation (laughs) (laughs) says the failed journalist Yep, exactly. So she says that's why she acted like she knew what Cecilia knew, which is obviously patently ridiculous. Was everyone eye-rolling on the jury, or did people actually believe her? This is really an interesting case because a lot of people were very snowed by her. Her family and a lot of her supporters believed everything. They thought this is just a deranged young kid from the wrong side of town who became obsessed with her. She made one mistake. You know how those teenage boys are, you know, and and people still to this day are are defending her. So I hate that it was with like that the kids were from that part of town too, because I feel mm-hmm. like it's just so much easier to pin the blame. Yeah, and and there was I think Pete Randall had had a previous offense. He had like gotten into a fight with his stepfather at some point and assaulted him, and so he'd already been in trouble with the law. So it was very easy to point to these kids. And say they were, like, bad kids and she was, like, an upstanding middle-class white lady, you know? So annoying. But, I mean, she picked these kids on purpose. Yep. You know, she wasn't going after the captain of the football team over here. Sausage pants. She wasn't going for her own high school boyfriend, Mr. Sausage, over here. Uh, Smart's time on the stand did little to endear her to the public. She seemed defensive, all business, and cold. The Boston Herald dubbed her the Ice Princess, and multiple media sources commented on her inability to muster up a single tear of sorrow or regret. 
a local TV reporter said, I think her lawyer should have told her to stick some onion slices down her blouse. Hilarious. She's got to get those tear ducts working sometime soon or she's had it. Yeah. It's embarrassing. This is embarrassing. It seemed the jury wasn't particularly impressed with Pam either. After one day of deliberation, they found her guilty of all three charges. In accordance with New Hampshire law, the judge was required on the guilty verdict on the conspiracy to commit murder charge to sentence Pam to life without the possibility of parole. L-wop, bitch. She got L-wopped. We need a sound effect for L-wopped. I'm going to like, let's make one. Yeah. Cool. Oh my God. Good. Bitch was stunned. She did not see this was coming. So she's still in jail. Yep. She finally turned to her attorney and said, I can't believe Billy. First he took Greg's life, and now he's taking mine. Fuck you. Blaming others for her actions till the very end. Till her last free moment. Yep. So, a sad note for the smarts. During the close of the trial, they were contacted by a woman named Linda Avery, who claimed to be the woman Greg had had a one-night stand with. She said that unbeknownst to Greg, she had become pregnant due to the encounter and had given birth to Greg's baby. Bill and Judy Smart were overjoyed at the news. A grandson, a piece of their beloved son lived on. Mm -hmm. She even followed up by sending a photo of an age-appropriate baby who the Smart swore was the spitting image of Greg as a child. Oh, that just gave me goosebumps. I know. Unfortunately for the hopeful grandparents, it turned out to be a cruel hoax by a bored and lonely woman who had become obsessed with the televised trial and case how did you just do that to me <laughs> what the fuck jesse that was like a 30 second emotional roller coaster that was like really messed up well think about how the smarts felt and that, they like, they, i can't like believe you just dropped the fuck on me <laughs> yeah it's super fucked up it's super fucked up that a weird lady did this to them oh my god isn't that unbelievable? Wait, so is this woman's name actually Linda Avery? No, she was a fake name. I don't know what the woman's real name was. Uh Did they catch who did that? They did catch her, but I don't think they charged her with anything. Oh my god, that woman needs to burn. Well, she needs some mental help is what she needs. Who would do that? Oh, Jesse, that like gave me goosebumps and everything. I know. So sadly there was no grandchildren at least from greg i think they had they have grandchildren from their other kids okay that's good yeah but still i mean you can have a million kids you lose one it's just you'll never be over it oh god Mm -hmm. oh my god i'm just as mad at that woman as i am at pam (laughs) i know that one when i read that they also in the book steven the author writes about it in two separate parts so you get your hopes really way up like because he mentions it first and then he mentions it after the he mentions it after the trial that the cops follow up on the lead and she's just a con artist oh my god yeah it's it's terrible so let's talk about where the boys are now so jr was released on parole in 2005 after serving nearly 15 years in prison 
Both Billy and Pete were paroled in 2015 after 25 years. All three were rewarded for good behavior in prison and expressed grave remorse for their involvement in the murder. Like even you can see grown up Billy who was 41 when he was released. And it's so weird. He's just like, you watch this person age. You watch him from like a 15 year old to a 41 year old all of a sudden. You think that's the amount of life he's lost. And he's still hysterical. He's still crying at his parole hearing. Like, there was so much regret, obviously, you know, in him. I know you've said before that that actually really helps with um, while while you're in jail getting evaluated. Yes, you have to acknowledge what you've done and show how you've atoned for it. And you should absolutely apologize to the family and really – own up to your actions that cause so much devastation. That's yeah. what, that's what the parole board wants to see. Just like Pam. Just oh yeah, just <laughs> like that bitch. Um so yeah, I couldn't really find any information about what JR and Pete are up to. Hopefully JR's, you know, gotten his dream of becoming a mechanic. But it appears Bill got married while still in prison and upon his release moved to Maine to be with his wife and Aww. begin an apprenticeship to become an electrician. That's cool. Yep. So, I mean, it's hard to say. I don't know if 25 years is really enough to make up for the loss of someone's life, but I do feel like they served their sentence. They seemed very sorry and rehabilitated, and I hope to God that they stay clean out there and they can build something out of this tragedy, you know? That's awesome that he got married and he's, like, living in Maine with her. Yeah, they all – they did ask the smart family – for forgiveness and the smart family was like nah fuck you which i can also completely understand interesting yeah i mean either either way with that i mean it's like if if you i feel like it just depends on like what makes you feel better as the actual yeah some people feel better forgiving it you know releases a weight off of them and other people, it would only cause more pain. So I feel like it's their prerogative if they don't want to. And know? I'm sure if he's done all the steps of healing, he knew the risk with reaching out to them as well that they couldn't yeah. say no. So Absolutely. I mean, you killed somebody. There's consequences to that. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can't have everything go smoothly. You lost a lot of your life and they lost a piece of their souls, you know? Yeah. So Pam, meanwhile, still <laughs> fights to someday be paroled. She's still filing appeals. Although it looks unlikely that that will ever happen, due in no small part because to this day she refuses to admit her role in the crime. As recently as 2019, she told reporters that she was unfairly set up by both the boys and the media. It was a conspiracy against her from the beginning. Mm-hmm. While in prison, she has earned a master's in English literature from Mercy College, as well as a master's of science and law degree from Southern California University for Professional Studies. And she is currently working on a doctorate in ministry. Of course. Yep, she's been keeping busy. She also serves as a grievance representative and an HIV prevention counselor for fellow inmates. She needs to just stay in there. Seems like she's doing a great job. Yeah. She's working on herself, promoting herself. Helping others. She's also done about a million interviews over the years. So there's definitely, if you want to go on, you can see her on 2020. There was a documentary film about her apparently a couple years ago. That This most recent three-part doc that I recommended. She is crazily all over the place and is staying on relevant and of interest despite the nearly 30 years that have passed since she orchestrated the murder of her husband. But I have some 
a real tea for you. Are you ready? Some, some what? Real tea. Are you ready for the tea to get real spilled? tea? I guess it kind of sounds like real tea when I say it like that. Yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> real tea. Are you ready? Go. Spill it, bitch. Okay. So I'm in an awesome Facebook group that's called I'm High and This is True Crime. <laughs> and they're great. You don't have to be high to appreciate it. I promise you guys I haven't been high in quite a while. Um, but it's actually a very engaged and very cool community. And there was a woman who was in it. And I'm going to keep her anonymous because I'm not sure if she w- would want you know, her name revealed or anything, who posted about serving time with Pam at Bedford Hills. Now, this is, of course, just one person's opinion, but they said that she is extremely arrogant, narcissistic, and traded heavily on her fame. She apparently now sneaks blonde hair dye in to the jail and is now peroxide bleach blonde, which you can see in the documentary. She's pretty bottle blonde. She also apparently still likes them young as the former inmate reported that during her time there pam had a 21 year old girlfriend when she was in her 40s wow mm-hmm. so this is still facebook so we should all take it with a grain of salt but i thought it was super interesting and also everyone should join that facebook group because they have some of the craziest most wild conversations about true crime and it's awesome Yep. So Pam still has a lot of supporters, including famous feminists like Gloria Steinem and Eve Ensler. You're lying. Nope. They think that it's completely unfair that she's still behind bars. Many, many, many people think it's unfair that the killer who actually pulled the trigger is free to live his life on the outside, while Pam has almost zero chance of ever getting out of jail. She orchestrated the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. She left the door open, told them to hide the Shih Tzu downstairs, wore every ring on her finger. She planned the entire thing and groomed them for months. There's absolutely no reason that she should not be locked up as an LWAP. I think that's completely fair. I do think that the only thing that is weird to me is how they tried the boys as adults. But like I was saying, I do think it should have been a more severe punishment than just two years. So I think that they did do it correctly for them. Yeah. I mean, she was absolutely the mastermind. I have yeah. no doubts about her guilt. Just because you matter. don't pull the trigger, if it's your idea and you're planting it in, in a bunch of children's heads and then raping one of them. Mm-hmm. I think that also they talk about this at the very end of the book. He has an epilogue and he talks to a uh, psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist was saying that this is actually something that's very common in sociopaths. Where they can like they can say on a lie detector that they were not responsible for the murder, yep. that they didn't kill anyone because they feel no guilt and they separate themselves by saying there's free will. They made a choice, you know. They did a thing. Why? Why am I getting pulled into this? Yep. When I didn't, I didn't stand there and pull their finger, you yep. know. And yeah. he said she will absolutely never stop saying she wasn't a part of this because it's what she's told herself and what she believes. Yeah. Which doesn't make it true. <laughs> Which doesn't make it true, and it doesn't mean that you're not going to get punished. Sorry, Pam. You know? The secret's not going to work for you. Sorry, Pammy. Sorry. Uh, you're not getting out. <laughs> also, <laughs> lastly, I told you I'd tell you what movie to watch. I highly recommend that you guys watch the 1995 film To Die For, loosely based on the case. It's actually such a good movie. Feature? It's a feature film, and it's by Gus Van Sant, and it stars Nicole Kidman as, like, an alt-world Pam. 
So what they did is he created kind of a mockumentary style that is based on a book that was loosely based on this case. So the book is To Die For by Joyce Maynard. Okay. And that's what they based the the whole movie on. Yep. And it's a version of Pam that was basically the same. They just changed some things. Like the Greg character works in the family restaurant and they're like really Italian. And the Nicole Kidman character is like actually working at a local TV station. And she's like this crazy ambitious monster who's trying to get on TV. So it's like kind of like these alternative versions of the same characters. A little bit more interesting. Does, yes, a little bit more interesting. And of course, everybody is much better looking. Yeah. Um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays the Billy character. And he wow. is so good. He's so like young and unsettling. Because you know how unsettling Joaquin Phoenix is? Yeah. He does the intense like brooding dirty teenager thing really well. And, and it's Casey still hot. Affleck. Yeah, he's still hot. He's creepy but hot. Yeah. Um, Casey Affleck is the murderous sidekick. So they kind of condense the two boys down to one character. Okay. But it's actually surprisingly like funny and it's dark and it's really good. And it has a twist ending because it basically follows the smart case extremely closely. And then you get to the end and it's a totally different ending, which actually is quite satisfying. And also poor Nathaniel, my husband, guys, has to watch one million bad like true crime documentaries, lifetime movies, everything. I make him watch this stuff with me. And he was so excited to watch this movie. He's like, that is like the best thing you've ever made me watch connected to this podcast. <laughs> what was what was the name of the three part? Do you remember? Oh, that was Pamela Smart, an American murder mystery. And you can stream it now on Hulu. Okay. All right. So... That's that's what I've got for you guys. Also, ooh, ooh, Andy, I have something very exciting to announce. What? Okay, so Andy and I have talked about this a little bit. So this is kind of her oh, first spill? time hearing it too. Gonna I'm spill gonna it? spill it. Yes, because I think we're gonna put one out very soon. Andy and I have been trying to figure out what kind of fun bonus content we can do for you guys. Just a little short form quickie so we can get a little bit more content to you every week and I wanted to do something seasonal because I am a basic bitch who loves her pumpkin spice and I think that we should have seasonal quickies so yes we are going to be hosting a series um, coming out once a week in October about what happens when people who are cheated on get revenge some of them are murderous, so there's some very fatal results from somebody cheating on them, and some of them are just bizarre or even funny stories, so it's all cuckold's revenge, essentially, so we will be calling it Cucktoberfest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Andy's going to pick some stories. I'm going to pick some stories. I'll probably be reading Andy a couple articles, and we'll be talking about it. Yeah, so we we are going to figure this out soon because I'm really excited about this for you guys. And then we're getting the countdown of our first episode that we're going to work on together. Yes, guys, our um, Thanksgiving episode will actually be in studio together for the very first time. And by in studio, I mean in my guest room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have some very exciting stuff coming up. Um, Andy and I are also going to figure out 
we're going to figure out what kind of other holiday seasonal fun bonus quickies we can do. So, But are open to suggestions as well. But yes, definitely actually. we'll do some holiday love murder quickies as well. Yes. If you guys come across any really interesting like ch- wild cheating stories – um, even wild like Reddit stories about relationships, about murder, about like holiday murder. If there's any like bizarre Christmas murders that you want covered, please, please, please email us at lovers at lovemurder.love or feel free to DM us on any social media. And absolutely, if you are enjoying these stories and you want to hear more or you're just really jazzed to start getting even more content, please leave us a review and let us know or just hit that five stars. Either way, I'll love you forever. Yeah, we really, really, really love reviews and always talk about it whenever we get one. Yeah, so please make our day. All right. <laughs> wow. That was that was crazy. Pamela Spart is nuts. I mean, there's a reason why it's uh, such a big case. In conclusion, don't plan murders with teenagers. It's not going to go well. Yeah, I mean, you really shouldn't be sleeping with teenagers anyway as an adult, but also, like, don't don't plan murders, period. <laughs> yeah, don't plan murders with anyone and never sleep with a teenager unless you are one. I feel like we've had to say that before and we'll probably a few have times. to say it again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and as always, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 